I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller, And the questions I'm pursuing in this programme are How has our understanding of dogs changed in the past 20 years? What have we discovered about their abilities, their needs, their evolution? Because if you take a step back and think about it, choosing a large, fierce carnivore as the very first species to domesticate was an odd choice for our Paleolithic ancestors. You know, if I had a time machine, I would really love to go back and look at the very earliest relationships between people and wolves and discover once and for all why on earth people decided to coexist with these animals on such an intimate basis. It seems such an odd thing to do in some ways, uh, even though it's, it's been enormously beneficial to us in the long run. It's hard to imagine why it was so beneficial at the time. My guest today is James Serple. Professor of Animal Ethics and Welfare at the University of Pennsylvania. Why are we looking back 20 years? Because that's how long has passed since the first edition of his edited collection entitled The Domestic Dog, Its Evolution, Behaviour and Interactions with People. A new, completely revised and significantly expanded edition of the book appeared at the end of 2016. And when James and I spoke on the phone recently, we took stock of some of the major changes in our understanding of dogs that have taken place in the intervening years. For anyone interested in dogs and our relationship with them, the book is completely fascinating, readable, multidisciplinary and bang up to date. I began the interview by asking James if dogs have always occupied an important place in his life. Yes, they have. Well, put it this way, I grew up with a dog and from a pretty early age, and he was quite a character, a bit of the black sheep for the family. He was always getting out and wandering off and um, getting in trouble. But I kind of looked on him as a, as a sort of sibling, I think. He loomed large in my childhood. <laughs> and at what stage did you begin to take a scientific interest in, in animals and, and in particular dogs? Pretty much from the get-go, um, I was uh, always interested in animals as a child, uh, fascinated by them, so much so that my parents were a bit worried about me. I was one of those sort of uh, slightly sort of Gerald Durrell-y type of kids who was always out in the woods collecting things and bringing them home. But um, I suppose 
when I was at doing my undergraduate degree, I um, did a course on the domestication of plants and animals at the Institute of Archaeology in London. I got very interested in the whole process of uh, the domestication of animals and the sort of various theories as to why humans had decided to domesticate animals. And I, um, I decided to do a sort of undergraduate dissertation as part of that course on the domestication of the dog. And I guess everything sort of dates particularly from that because I got a huge kick out of writing that um, undergraduate dissertation and I got very good grades for it. And it sort of set me on course, I think. And I know that's a question that still intrigues you. So, you know, that several decades later, how it happened, when it happened, where it happened. Those are still questions that science is, is tussling with. Exactly. It's fascinating. In fact, the more, they, the more they find out about it, the less they seem to know. There's the archaeological evidence, which points in various directions. And now, of course, there's the molecular genetics evidence, which is uh, also proving to be extremely complex and difficult to unravel. And um, now there's, of course, very strong interest in ancient DNA. So they're extracting tiny samples of ancient DNA from early fossil and subfossil remains of canids from all over the world. And, and that is proving to be very f fascinating, but also extreme, <laughs> extremely complicated. And um, every time people seem to be getting close to unraveling the origins of the domestic dog, some new discovery is made that kind of realigns everything and points in a different direction. So it's a, a very fascinating, but kind of frustrating. Mm. Well, I was, I was just about to ask you the very basic question. Do you think we're getting, we're getting close? Do you think the answer is almost within our grasp? <laughs> I keep hoping we're getting closer. Um, certainly, I would have thought that if the molecular genetic data they're deriving from ancient DNA ought to, I mean, that ought to be pointing us in the right direction. But so far, it just seems to be muddying the waters. Um, because, well, I think part of the complexity arises from the fact that the dog has crossbred with wild canids ever since its domestication. Sort of new genetic material is being injected into the domestic dog population. That really confuses things uh, from a, a DNA standpoint. So I'm, I'm sort of sitting on the sidelines a bit and looking forward to you know, the next series of discoveries. But I'm not sure I'm totally optimistic that it will clarify things greatly. So we shouldn't expect a, a date and a place. We should expect more a complex pattern of, of mechanisms and, and processes that might have been taking place over several centuries in, in different places. Right. They're getting closer in terms of dates, I think. It looks pretty definite that the dog is at least 15,000 years old and possibly 10 or 20,000 years older. But um, it's unlikely that it's a recent domestication. It, it pretty clearly occurred during the Paleolithic period before any other animals were domesticated and before the dawn of agriculture. So we're talking about hunting and gathering peoples somewhere in Eurasia uh, were taming or domesticating wolves. And as you say in the book, 
it's worth pondering the question why share our lives with this large and potentially dangerous carnivore in the first place? And, you know, we who've had several thousand years of living with dogs and also other domesticated animals perhaps need to take a step back and think, well, yes, if, if this is the first animal to be domesticated and it was a wolf and it was a competitor and a predator and a rival, it's not a self-evident process to embark on, is it, for those Paleolithic humans? No, indeed. It's a rather an odd choice of an animal to domesticate. Um, you'd think um, if people were being, you know, thinking purely in, in sort of material, materialistic terms, they would have domesticated something they could eat, like um, uh, cows or pigs or something like that. But the domestication of those animals seems to come much later. So, yes, it does raise important questions about what were people up to, why were they doing this. The, I think most of the theories suggests that wolves were kind of uh, camp followers, were getting interested in humans as a source of kind of uh, waste material that they were scrounging off. The more I learn about that theory, the less and less I like it. It just doesn't seem plausible to me that Paleolithic humans would have wanted wolves scrounging around there. Uh, villages or encampments, I think that would have been perceived as very threatening because wolves, they don't often attack people, but they certainly can. And um, children are very vulnerable. And I just can't imagine that um, this scenario where the wolves become bolder and bolder and less afraid of humans would be perceived as a positive thing by Paleolithic humans, I think, because they didn't, <laughs> being bold and unafraid of humans is one thing, but these aren't these wouldn't have been animals that had any particular social connection with humans. So in a modern context, we like having something like a bear being unafraid of humans and wandering into towns and cities and helping itself to whatever it wanted. And that, that's not something that humans would be very tolerant of. So I think personally that humans must have played a more active role in the process, probably by adopting wolf pups. But then, again, that raises the question, well, why on earth would Paleolithic humans go around adopting wolf pups? And that's an interesting question in itself. Yes. And then even, even if they begin to do that, then that's not the same as, as domestication. Is You can tame a wolf pup, but unless you sort of establish some sort of lineage, you're not really on the track to domestication. Exactly. But I do think it, uh, you need that sort of transitional phase where there are uh, tame wolves around that uh, regard humans as social partners before you can get the development of a domestic population. So, so moving on from the the origins of of the dog, James, and I'm thinking a bit about how the book has changed from the first to the the second edition. You've already mentioned the the molecular, the, the genetic. What kind of other insights have those new fields opened up since the first edition came out in in the mid nineties? Well, there are so many. I mean, behavioral genetics is a, a, a growing area, and, and a lot of uh, behavioral geneticists are now starting to focus in on the dog as a potential model for understanding uh, the evolution of behavioral characteristics. The dog is, a, is potentially a nice model because we have this incredible diversity of different breeds, all of which have been selected for slightly different temperament traits and behavioral characteristics. So it looks like an, uh, a very intriguing kind of potential model for studying the genetics of behavior with obvious uh, sort of translational relevance to 
the evolution of human behavioral traits as well. So that's one area that's, I'd say, developing. The area of dog training and behavior modification has really evolved tremendously since the first edition came out um, with this increasing focus on reward-based training and uh, moving away from punishment as a viable method of training dogs. The area of animal-assisted interventions of various kinds in human therapeutic interventions involving animals, primarily dogs. That's another area that's just exploded, really, uh, since the first edition. You know, it was necessary to introduce new chapters as well to cover things like the impact of feral dogs on wildlife, things like that, which really hadn't even been considered in the, in the first edition. I mean, we knew there were free-roaming dogs, and we had chapters about the ecology of free-roaming dogs, but I don't think people at that time realized what a huge impact some of these dog populations were having on wildlife or conservation-sensitive wildlife. You mentioned training there, and in the uh, introduction to the book, you, you write about your hope that the book will be an antidote to the snake oil salesmen who peddle at best, sort of half-understood theories and at worst, downright wrong theories about how dogs um, learn and interact and, and behave and therefore should be trained. I mean, do you, do you think that is a message which is which is getting out there, which is being understood? Do you think the, in other words, I'm asking, I suppose, about the the interface between the the academic research and how that is popularly received uh, by by the public and the people they pay money uh, in order to train their their dogs for them. Yes, although I think there's a sort of a, 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 dis, um, a sort of disconnect between what's happening in popular media and what's happening out there in the dog training community. So I think in the dog training community as, as a whole, the message is, is getting out slowly that um, reward-based methods of training are, are better and more durable and produce a better relationship between the owner and the dog. But at the same time, there, you know, there are some sort of popular TV pundits who are out there still selling very old-fashioned methods of dog training based on what they call dominance or leadership-type roles, which really has been horribly misunderstood by the public at large to mean that you need to dominate your dog in order to get decent behavior from it, which is really not any longer considered appropriate in scientific circles. And that, that old wolf model, you know, extrapolating from, from what was understood about uh, or what was understood to be natural wolf behaviour is very tenacious, isn't it? No matter how many times it's discredited, it's very tenacious that, that, we, that we should simply read the behaviour of our dogs as, you know, matching that of their ancestors. Yes, I think it's to some degree it's, there's a certain inevitability to people sort of assuming that because dogs are derived from wolves that some of their behavior is also derived from wolves. There's also a lot of misunderstandings among the dog training community about this. You know, people have tried to push out the idea that wolves don't show dominance behavior, and, and that's not true either. They do. Or they've tried to say that it only occurs in captive wolf populations, which is also untrue. I mean, wolves in the wild do definitely show dominance behavior, but what's interesting is that it's mainly to do with younger animals showing deference towards older, much more mature animals. 
So there is a hierarchy, but it's based on age and seniority rather than on uh, being the tough guy. And unfortunately, that message has been hard to get across. And, you know, you will see your own dog if you have a dog in the family showing these signals of deference towards, you know, primarily the adult members of the family. It hasn't disappeared, but it does not necessarily imply that that dog is out there trying to be a social climber or assert itself in the social hierarchy against people. How much progress do you think we've made in understanding what constitutes quality of life for a dog? Is that, is that an area which still needs further investigation and, and communication? I think it does, yes. I think, I think there's a tendency to assume that uh, compared with other domestic animals, dogs have, have it pretty good. You know, they li- live the life of Riley in people's homes and get regular meals and that sort of thing. But I think there is a slight misunderstanding there and that many of the dogs uh, that we keep are are not kept particularly well. So they spend, I mean, we're talking for, for, for one thing about a highly social animal, animals that are very distressed uh, normally by being separated from either other people or other dogs. And, and yet the vast majority of dogs live in single dog households and they get left at home alone for much of the day when their owners are out at work or out at school. And, and that in itself is a significant welfare problem for many dogs. I mean, other dogs adjust to it okay and just basically sleep through the, the period of the day when there's nobody around. But uh, many dogs become extremely distressed by this level of separation. I mean, dogs like to get a tremendous amount of exercise. They're very active animals. And in my community here in the US, it's actually illegal to let your dog off the leash unless it's in a confined space in a dog park essentially and most people don't have access to that which means that your average dog gets walked around the block on a leash twice a day and that's really inadequate in terms of exercise and i think this is the explanation or at least a partial explanation for why so many of these dogs develop behavioral problems they're just simply not exercised enough The list goes on. There's, of course, all the problems associated with the way we've bred these animals. So many of them now have uh, severe health problems due to either inbreeding or being bred to a very peculiar shape. So squashed faces and short bandy legs and all these other characteristics that we've bred into our dogs, uh, which are not natural and which do cause them health problems and welfare problems. So yes, there's a lot more that we need to do in that area in terms of, of research. So one of the conclusions that I that I drew from reading the book was that dogs are, are better at understanding us than we perhaps are at understanding them. Is that, is that fair? Yes, I think that's a very fair <laughs> observation. I think that's because that's been essential to their survival. So that ability to read humans has really been the key to their success. The human ability to read dogs certainly pays off in certain situations. For example, if you're using a dog for a working role of some kind. So a classic example would be the shepherd with his, um, his working border collie. You know, obviously, he has to be able to um, read his dog very well in order to use that dog effectively. But... For many of us, it's enough that the dog 
just greets us and is nice to us and seems overjoyed when we come home, that kind of thing. It's, there's not much onus on us to really understand our dogs that well. And I think that um, that's just a, a, an unfortunate <laughs> product of the relationship we have with these animals. But certainly for the dogs, you know, they would never have survived as long as they have or been as successful as they have if it wasn't for their uncanny ability to read us and anticipate our, our, our feelings and our emotions. Well, one question I came to the book with, which I was, I was keen to know what the, the latest scientific research said, was about whether dogs possess a theory of mind. In, in other words, if they can intuit the, the contents of, um, of human beings' minds and, uh, and work out what we're thinking. And it sounds, it sounds as though the jury is still out, but, they, but there's, there's quite a bit of scepticism about whether they possess a theory of mind. Yeah, um, I would agree. It's, it's, the jury is still out. And the, question, the other question is whether it's possible to have a, a, kind, um, a rudimentary theory of mind or whether it's an all-or-nothing thing. You know, we know that two-year-old children don't appear to possess it, and then at about three, they start to develop it. That suggests that it's a that it's something <laughs> that it, that it is pretty much all or nothing. But on the other hand, it may be that there is a capacity to learn about the other individual and their habitual ways of behaving that could be a kind of precursor to developing a full-blown theory of mind. I don't know whether there's necessarily a kind of an aha moment when you're three years old and you go, oh, wow, I just suddenly realized this person thinks like I do. And I'm not sure that dogs do that. But nevertheless, they show some remarkably uncanny capacities to anticipate what their owners are planning to do and things like that. And it's very, very hard to tease out how much of that could be some sort of rudimentary theory of mind and how much of it is just simply very skillful reading of nonverbal signals that humans are simply not conscious of giving. And so it's, it, it's really tough to pin it down. There are lots of you know cognitive psychologists doing experiments with dogs to see if they can try and uh, pin it down or, 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 or determine once and for all whether or not dogs or at least some dogs possess something like a theory of mind but I, I agree the jury's still out and we shouldn't assume that all dogs are equivalent you know we there's a this vast range of abilities cognitive abilities in the dog population so some dogs are clearly not very uh, not the brightest spark in the firmament and other dogs seem to be remarkably bright these dogs for example that have huge vocabularies of words uh, that they recognize and can distinguish between so, you know, it raises the interesting possibility that there are some dogs out there with a theory of mind, but the majority of them don't have it. I was really interested in the chapter that you wrote about what we could call the cultural status of dogs. And you look at lots of different areas of the world and different times. And a word that you keep coming back to is ambivalence. So although we might think of dogs in the Western world as sort of cherished pets, almost like treated almost like children... There is a deep ambivalence to dogs running through many societies, including our own, to, to the extent that it does seem to be something which almost defines our relationship with them. Can you say a little bit about some of the salient characteristics of, characteristics of that? Yes, it, it, it crops up, uh, like you say, across cultures and across 
context. So it doesn't matter whether you're looking at cultures, for example, that eat dogs or cultures that keep them as pets or cultures that use them for hunting. But you find this self-same kind of ambivalence about the actual status of the dog relative to humans. So I like to think of the dog as this animal that lives in somewhere in the interstices between animal and human. So it's not truly an animal anymore, partly due to its domesticated status, but mainly because of its strong affinity for people. And yet people aren't really accepting it as being wholly human, even though we talk about dogs as being members of our families and things like that. They're not really the same as members of our family, but they are kind of honorary members of the family. At heart, we seem to have uh, this, <laughs> we seem to be at some level uncomfortable about accepting the dog wholly as a member of the human world. Uh, but at the same time, we're not happy thinking of it as being just another domestic animal. So it does occupy this kind of strange no man's land in between. You know, I, I speculate towards the end of that chapter as to why this might be. And, and the conclusion I kind of reach is that the dogs <laughs> unwittingly become a kind of uh, an ambassador for the rest of the animal kingdom. And this is an awkward situation to be in because, you know, as long as it refrains from behaving like a dog, we love it and treat it like a person. But as soon as it starts behaving a bit too much like a dog and doing things that dogs do that humans don't do, um, then uh, uh, we start to think of it as something obnoxious or unclean or dirty. So it's a very, it's a very intriguing kind of situation, and I think we, <laughs> we're, I don't see an easy way out of it. To be honest, it's it's just one of those things that humans, how humans try to comp compartmentalize their world, and the poor old dog has got saddled with this unusual position of being on the fence. I mean, it it sounds as though the expectations we have of dogs in terms of how they behave, how they interact, really are too high for them to, to feasibly meet. Is that fair? Yes, I think it is. And um, in our efforts to force them into that sort of human mold, we are, you know, harming their welfare um, because they aren't humans and they have different needs and different requirements. Uh, they have adapted admirably well to the human environment but still, they aren't human, and uh, I think we have to, at some point, meet them halfway and accept that if we want to share our lives with these animals, we have to make accommodation for, you know, their needs and their interests as well as just our own. And you think because dogs share our lives and our homes with us that they they raise the question of our moral responsibility to non-human animals in a particularly pertinent and difficult to avoid way in, in a way that you know factory farm animals are out of sight and so they're not they're not going to raise those questions in quite such a such, such a flagrant way yeah i think that's where the ambassador idea comes in that they are you know they're out there representing the rest of the animal kingdom and um, whenever we think about our relationships with them and how close those relationships often can get it raises very uncomfortable moral questions about the way we treat other animals, which uh, are not so privileged and are not so much in our favor. And um, that, again, is another source of this sort of ambivalence. We don't want to let dogs too close because that's kind of opening the door to 
having to address all these other, you know, all these other animals which we treat so poorly. If there were one scientific or historic question concerning dogs that you would really like to either discover or or see someone else discover the answer to, however big or however small, is there one thing that that nags you in the, in the dark hours of the night? And you think wouldn't wouldn't it be great to know that? Well, I would. <laughs> You know, if I had a time machine, I would really love to go back and look at the very earliest relationships between people and wolves and discover once and for all why on earth people decided to coexist with these animals on such an intimate basis. It seems such an odd thing to do in some ways, uh, even though it's, it's been enormously beneficial to us in the long run. It's hard to imagine why it was so beneficial at the time. It would just be wonderful to be able to see what was going on and get a better understanding of the, both the human and the canine side of that story is. I mean, just before the, the interview, I was just glancing back at the book you wrote in the 80s in The Company of Animals. And I saw that I had double underlined, double scored in the margin, a, a paragraph where you say, prehistoric man may have loved his dogs as pets long before he made use of them for any other purpose. Affection for pets may seem in retrospect trivial and unimportant, yet it may have been responsible for one of the most profound and significant events in the history of our species. And I want, I want maybe I could ask you as a very last question, is that, is that a view that you still adhere to? Uh, yes, essentially. And, and, but I'm, I am totally open to other ideas. And I have spent a lot of time reading about other ideas and looking at the whole history of this concept, I, which isn't a concept that I came up with. It was a, actually, you know, you can trace it back to Francis Galton, who was Charles uh, Darwin's cousin, who first came up with the idea based on the observations of early explorers who were going out to so-called primitive communities around the world and coming back with these stories about how they kept wild animals as pets. And to these European explorers, that seemed like a weird thing for these people to be doing, sufficiently weird that they remark on it. And Galton collected lots and lots of examples of this type of behavior and concluded that maybe pet keeping was the, the key, as it were, to animal domestication. But it's recently the theory has fallen out of favor, at least in relation to the dog, where there's been, you know, where repeatedly in, in scientific publications, I see people regurgitating this idea that uh, sort of pretty much wolves domesticated themselves by becoming scavengers from uh, human waste. I think, I guess these things go in cycles. And one of these days I'll sit down and uh, write a, a review paper that will bring it all together <laughs> and uh, hopefully settle the matter. I was talking to James Serple about the domestic dog, its evolution, behaviour and interactions with people, which is available now in hardback, paperback and as an e-book from Cambridge University Press. Full details at cambridge.org. Do also check out James's earlier book, In the Company of Animals, a study of human-animal relationships, also published by Cambridge. And do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. And if you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can also catch up 
on any interviews you've missed. And, if you feel so inclined, even leave a review. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.